Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 8 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 8. With her veil lifted. Mrs. You recognize me? Too well. The tone was deep with meaning, but there was no accusation in it, nor was there any note of relief. It was more as if some hope deeply, and perhaps unconsciously, cherished had suffered a sudden and complete extinction. The change this made in him was too perceptible for her not to observe it. The shadow lying deep in her eyes now darkened her whole face. She had tried to prepare him for this moment tried to prepare herself. But who can prepare the soul for the return of old troubles, or make other than startling the resurrection of a ghost laid, as men thought, forever? You see that it was no fault of my own I was trying to hide, she finally remarked in a rich and sympathetic voice. Put back your veil. It was all he said. Trembling, she complied, murmuring as she fumbled with its folds. Disgrace to an Ostrander. I know that I was mad to risk it for a moment. Forgive me for the attempt, and listen to my errand. Oliver was willing to marry my child, even after he knew the shame it would entail. But Ruther would not accept the sacrifice when she learned, as she was obliged to now, that her father had not only been sentenced to death for the worst crime in the calendar, but had suffered the full penalty, leaving only a legacy of eternal disgrace to his wife and innocent child, she showed his spirit becoming a better parentage. In his presence, and in spite of his dissuasions, for he acted with all the nobility one might expect, she took off her veil with her own hands, and laid it aside with a look expressive of eternal renunciation. She loves him, sir, and there is no selfishness in her heart, and never has been for all her frail appearance and the mildness of her temper. She is like flint where principle is involved, or the welfare of those she loves is at stake. My daughter may die from shock or shame, but she will never cloud your son's prospects with the obloquy which has settled over her own. Judge Ostrander, I am not worthy of such a child, but such she is. If John... We will not speak his name, broke in Judge Ostrander, assuming a peremptory bearing quite unlike his former one of dignified reserve. I should like to hear, instead, your explanation of how my son, 
became inveigled into an engagement of which you, if no one else, knew the preposterous nature. Judge Ostrander, you do right to blame me. I should never have given my consent, never. But I thought our past so completely hidden, our identity so entirely lost under the accepted name of Averil. You thought! He towered over her in his anger. He looked and acted as in the old days, when witnesses cowered under his eye and voice. Say that you knew, madam, that you planned this unholy trap for my son. You had a pretty daughter, and you thought to it that she came under his notice. Nay, more, ignoring the claims of decency, you allowed the folly to proceed, if you did not help it on in your misguided ambition to marry your daughter well. Judge Ostrander, I did not plan their meeting, nor did I at first encourage his addresses. Not till I saw the extent of their mutual attachment did I yield to the event and accept the consequences. But I was wrong wholly wrong to allow him to visit her a second time. But now that the mischief is done, Judge Ostrander was not listening. I have a question to put you, said he, when he realized that she had ceased speaking. Oliver was never a fool. When he was told who your daughter was, what did he say of the coincidence which made him the lover of the woman against whose father his father had uttered a sentence of death? Didn't he marvel? and call it extraordinary the work of the devil? Possibly. But if he did, it was not in any conversation he had with me. Detroit is a large city, and must possess hundreds of sweet young girls within its borders. Could he contemplate without wonder the fact that he had been led to the door of the one above all others, between whom and himself fate had set such an insurmountable barrier? He must have been struck deeply by the coincidence. He must have been, madam, astonished at his manner, at the emphasis he placed upon this point which seemed to her so much less serious than many others. She regarded him doubtfully before saying, I was, if he was not, from the very first I wondered. But I got used to the fact during the five months of his courtship, and I got used to another fact, too, that my secret was safe so far as it ran the risk of being endangered by a meeting with yourself, Mr. Ostrander made it very plain to us that we need never expect to see you in Detroit. He did? Did he offer any explanation for this lack of, of sympathy between us? Never. It was a topic he forbore to enter into, and I think he only said what he did to prevent any expectations on our part of ever seeing you. And your daughter? Was he as close-mouthed in speaking of me to her as he was to you? I have no doubt of it. Ruther betrays no knowledge of you or of your habits, and has never expressed but one curiosity in your regard. As you can imagine what that is, I will not mention it. You are at liberty to. I have listened to much and can well listen to a little more. Judge, she is of a very affectionate nature, and her appreciation of your son's virtues is very great. Though her conception of yourself is naturally a very vague one, it is only to be expected that she should wonder how you could live so long without a visit from Oliver. Expectant as he was of this reply, and resolved as he was to hear it unmoved, he had miscalculated his strength or his power of concealment. 
for he turned aside immediately upon hearing it, and walked away from her towards the further extremity of the room. Covertly she watched him, first through her veil, and then with it partly removed. She did not understand his mood, and she hardly understood her own. When she entered upon this interview, her mind had been so intent upon one purpose that it seemed to absorb all her faculties and reach every corner of her heart. Yet here she was, after the exchange of many words between them, with her purpose uncommunicated and her heart unrelieved, staring at him not in the interest of her own griefs, but in commiseration of his. Yet when he faced her once more, every thought vanished from her mind save the one which had sustained her through the extraordinary measures she had taken to secure herself this opportunity of presenting her lost cause to the judgment of the only man from whom she could expect aid. But her impulse was stayed, and her thoughts sent wandering again by the penetrating look he gave her before she let her veil fall again. "'How long have you been in Detroit?' he asked. "'Ever since. And how old is Ruther? Eighteen, but twelve years ago, then.' He paused and glanced about him before adding, "'She was about the age of the child you brought to my house today.' "'Yes, sir, very nearly.' His lips took a strange twist. There was self-contempt in it, and some other very peculiar and contradictory emotion. But when this semblance of a smile had passed, it was no longer Oliver's father she saw before her, but the county's judge. Even his tone partook of the change as he dryly remarked, "'What you have told me concerning your daughter and my son is very interesting, but it was not for the simple purpose of informing me that this untoward engagement was at an end that you came to Shelby. You have another purpose. What is it? I could remain with you just five minutes longer.' Five minutes! It only takes one to kill a hope, but five are far too few for the reconstruction of one. But she gave no sign of her secret doubts as she plunged at once into her subject. I will be brief, said she, as brief as any mother can be who is pleading for her daughter's life as well as happiness. Ruther has no real ailment, but her constitution is abnormally weak, and she will die of this grief if some miracle does not save her. Strong as her will is, determined as she is to do her duty at all cost, she has very little physical stamina. See, here is her photograph, taken but a short time ago. Look at it, I beg. See what she was like when life was full of hope, and then imagine her with all hope eliminated. Excuse me? What use? I can do nothing. I am very sorry for the child, but— his very attitude showed his disclination to look at the picture. But she would not be denied. She thrust it upon him, and once his eyes had fallen upon it, they clung there, though evidently against his will. Ah, she knew that Ruther's exquisite countenance would plead for itself. God seldom grants to such beauty so lovely a spirit. If the features themselves failed to appeal— Certainly he must feel the charm of an expression which had already netted so many hearts. Breathlessly she watched him, and as she watched, she noted the heavy lines carved in his face by thought and possibly by sorrow, 
slowly relax and his eyes fill with a wistful tenderness. In the egotism of her relief, she thought to deepen the impression she had made by one vivid picture of her daughter as she was now, mistaking his temperament or his story, classing him in with the other strong men, the well of whose feeling once roused overflows in sympathetic emotion. She observed very gently, but as soon as she saw, unwisely. Such delicacy can withstand the blow, but not a steady heartbreak. When on that dreadful night I crept in from my sleepless bed to see how my darling was bearing her long watch, this was what I saw. She had not moved, no, not an inch in the long hours which had passed since I left her. She had not even stirred the hand from which, at her request, I had myself drawn her engagement ring. I doubt even if her lids had shut once over his strained and wide-staring eyes. It was as if she were laid out for her grave. Madam, the harsh tone recalled her to herself. She took back the picture he was holding towards her, and was hardly surprised when he said, Parents must learn to endure bitterness. I have not been exempt myself from such. Your child will not die. You have years of mutual companionship before you, while I have nothing. And now let us end this interview so painful to both. You have said, No, she broke in with sudden vehemence, all the more startling from the restraint in which she had held herself up to this moment. I have not said, I have not begun to say, what seethes like a consuming fire in my breast. Judge Ostrander, I do not know what has estranged you from Oliver. It must be something serious, for you are both good men. But whatever it is, of this I am certain. You would not willfully deliver an innocent child like mine to a wretched fate which a well-directed effort might avert. I spoke of a miracle. Will you not listen, Judge? I am not wild. I am not unconscious of presumption. I am only in earnest, in deadly earnest. A miracle is possible. The gulf between these two may yet be spanned. I see a way. What change was this to which she has suddenly become witness? The face which had not lost all its underlying benignancy even when it looked its coldest had now become settled and hard. His manner was absolutely repellent as he broke in with the quick disclaimer. But there is no way. What miracle could ever make your daughter, lovely as she undoubtedly is, a fitting match for my son? None, madam. Absolutely none. Such an alliance would be monstrous, unnatural. Why? The word came out boldly. If she was intimidated by this unexpected attack from a man accustomed to deference and altogether able to exact it, she did not show it. Because her father died the death of a criminal? she asked. The answer was equally blunt. Yes, a criminal over whose trial his father presided as judge. Was she daunted? No. Quick as a flash came the retort. A judge, however, who showed him every consideration possible. I was told at the time, and I have been assured by many since that you were more than just to him in your rulings. Such a memory creates a bond of gratitude, not hate. Judge Ostrander, he had taken a step towards the hall door, but he paused at this utterance of his name. 
answer me this one question. Why did you do this? As his widow, as the mother of his child, I implore you to tell me why you showed him this leniency. You must have hated him deeply. Yes, I have never hated any one more. The slayer of your dearest friend, of your inseparable companion, of the one person who stood next to your son in your affections and regard. He put up his hand. The gesture, the way he turned his face aside, showed that she had touched the raw of a wound still unhealed. Insensibly, the woman in her responded to this evidence of an undying sorrow, and modulating her voice she went on, with just a touch of the subtle fascination which made her always listen to. Your feeling for Mr. Etheridge was well known. Then why such magnanimity towards the man who stood on trial for killing him? Unaccustomed to be questioned, though living in an atmosphere of continual yes and no, he stared at the veiled features of one who so dared, as if he found it hard to excuse such presumption. But he answered her nonetheless, and with decided emphasis, possibly because his victim was my friend and lifelong companion. A judge fears his own prejudices. Possibly, but you had another reason, judge, a reason which justified you in your own eyes at the time, and which justifies you in mine now and always. Am I not right? This is no courtroom. The case is one of the past. It can never be reopened. The prisoner is dead. Answer me, then. As one sorrowing mortal replies to another, hadn't you another reason? The judge, panoplied though he was, or thought he was, against all conceivable attack, winced at this repetition of a question he had hoped to ignore, and in his anxiety to hide this involuntary betrayal of weakness, allowed his anger to have full vent as he cried out in no measured terms, What is the meaning of all this? What are you after? Why are you raking up these bygones, which only make the present condition of affairs darker and more hopeless? You say that you know some way of making the match between your daughter and my son feasible and proper. I say that nothing can do this. Fact. The sternest of facts is against it. If you found a way, I shouldn't accept it. Oliver Ostrander, under no circumstances and by means of no sophistries, can ever marry the daughter of John Scoville. I should think you would see that for yourself. But if John should be proved to have suffered wrongfully, if he should be shown to have been innocent— Innocent? Yes. I have always had doubts of his guilt, even when circumstances bore most heavily against him. And now, as I look back upon the trial and remember certain things, I feel sure that you had doubts of it yourself. His rebuke was quick, instant. With a force and earnestness which recalled the courtroom, he replied, Madam, your hopes and wishes have misled you. Your husband was a guilty man, as guilty a man as any judge ever passed sentence upon. Oh! She wailed forth, reeling heavily back and almost succumbing to the shock. She had so thoroughly convinced herself that what she said was true. But hers was a courageous soul. She rallied instantly, and approaching him again with face uncovered, and her whole potent personality alive with magnetism, she retorted, You say that, eye to my eye, hand on my hand, heart beating with my heart above the grave of our children's mutual happiness? I do.
convinced, for there was no wavering in his eye, no trembling in the hand she had clasped. Convinced, but ready notwithstanding to repudiate her own convictions. So much of the mother passion, if not the wife's, tugged at her heart. She remained immovable for a moment, waiting for the impossible, hoping against hope for a withdrawal of his words, and the re-illumination of hope. Then her hand fell away from his. She gave a great sob, and lowering her head, muttered, John Scoville smote down Algernon Etheridge. Oh God, oh God, what horror! A sigh from her one auditor welled up in the silence, holding a note which startled her erect, and brought back a memory which drove her again into passionate speech. But he swore the day I last visited him in the prison, with his arms pressed tight about me and his eye looking straight into mine as you are looking now, that he never struck that blow. I did not believe him then. There were too many dark spots in my memory of old lives premeditated and destructive of my happiness. But I believed him later, and I believe him now. Madam, this is quite unprofitable. A jury of his peers condemned him as guilty, and the law compelled me to pass sentence upon him, that his innocent child should be forced by the inexorable decrees of fate to suffer for a father's misdoing, I regret as much, perhaps more than you do. For my son, beloved, though irreconcilably separated from me, suffers with her, you say, but I see no remedy. No remedy, I repeat. Were Oliver to forget himself so far as to ignore the past and marry Ruther Scoville, a stigma would fall upon them both for which no amount of domestic happiness could ever compensate. Indeed, there can be no domestic happiness for a man and woman so situated. The inevitable must be accepted. Madam, I have said my last word. But not heard mine, she panted. For me to acknowledge the inevitable where my daughter's life and happiness are concerned would make me seem a coward in my own eyes, helped or unhelped, with the sympathy or without the sympathy of one who I hoped would show himself my friend. I shall proceed with the task to which I have dedicated myself. You will forgive me, Judge. You see that John's last declaration of innocence goes farther with me than your belief, backed as it is by the full weight of the law. Gazing at her as one gone suddenly demented, he said, I have failed to understand you, Mrs. I will call you Mrs. Averill. You speak of a task. What task? The only one I have heart for, the proving that Ruther is not the child of a willful murderer that another man did the deed for which he suffered. I can do it. I feel confident that I can do it, and if you will not help me, help you, after what I have said and reiterated that he is guilty, guilty, guilty. Advancing upon her with each repetition of the word, he towered before her, an imposing, almost formidable figure. Where was her courage now? In what pit of despair had it finally gone down? She eyed him, fascinated, feeling her inconsequence in all the madness of a romantic, ill-digested effort, when from somewhere in the maze of confused memories there came to her a cry, not of the disappointed heart, but of a daughter's shame, and she saw again the desperate, haunted look with which the stricken child had said in answer to some plea, A criminal's daughter has no place in this world but with the suffering and the lost. 
and nerved anew she faced again his anger which might well be righteous and with almost preternatural insight boldly declared you are too vehement to quite convince me judge ostrander acknowledge it or not there is more doubt than certainty in your mind a doubt which ultimately will lead you to help me you are too honest not to when you see that i have some reason for the hopes i express your sense of justice will prevail and you will confide to me the point untouched or the fact unmet which has left this rankling dissatisfaction to fester in your mind that known my way should broaden a way at the end of which i see a united couple my daughter and your son oh she is worthy of him the woman broke forth as he made another repellent and imperative gesture ask any one in the town where we have lived abruptly and without apology for his rudeness judge ostrander again turned his back and walked away from her to an old-fashioned bookcase which stood in one corner of the room halting mechanically before it he let his eyes roam up and down over the shelves seeing nothing as she was well aware but weighing as she hoped the merits of the problem she had propounded him she was therefore unduly startled when with a quick whirl about which brought him face to face with her once more he impetuously asked madam you were in my house this morning you came in through a gate which bella had left unlocked will you explain how you came to do this did you know that he was going down street leaving the way open behind him was there collusion between you her eyes looked up clearly into his she felt that she had nothing to disguise or conceal i had urged him to do this judge ostrander i had met him more than once in the street when he went out to do your errands and i used all my persuasion to induce him to give me this one opportunity of pleading my cause with you he was your devoted servant he showed it in his death but he never got over his affection for oliver he told me that he would wake oftentimes in the night feeling about for the boy he used to carry in his arms when i told him enough he knew who you were then he remembered me when i lifted my veil oh i know very well that i had not the right to influence your own man to disobey your orders but my cause was so pressing and your seclusion seemingly so arbitrary how could i dream that your nerves could not bear any sudden shock or that bella that giant among negroes would be so affected by his emotions that he would not see or hear an approaching automobile you must not blame me for these tragedies and you must not blame bella he was torn by conflicting duties and only yielded because of his great love for the absent i do not blame bella startled she looked at him with wondering eyes there was a brooding despair in his tone which caught at her heart and for an instant made her feel the full extent of her temerity in a vain endeavor to regain her confidence she falteringly remarked i had listened to what folks said i had heard that you would receive nobody talk to nobody bella was my only resource madam i do not blame you he was scrutinizing her keenly and for the first time understandingly whatever her station past or present she was certainly no ordinary woman nor was her face without beauty lit as it was by passion and every ardor of which a loving woman is capable 
no man would be likely to resist it unless his armor were thrice forged. Would he himself be able to? He began to experience a cold fear, a dread which drew a black veil over the future, a blacker veil than that which had hitherto rested upon it. But his face showed nothing. He was master of that yet. Only his tone, that silenced her. She was therefore scarcely surprised when, with a slight change of attitude which brought their faces more closely together, he proceeded with a piercing intensity not to be withstood. When you entered my house this morning, did you come directly to my room? Yes, Bella told me how to reach it. And when you saw me indisposed, unable, in fact, to greet you, what did you do then? With the force and meaning of one who takes an oath, she brought her hand, palm downward, on the table before her, as she steadily replied, I flew back into the room through which I had come, undecided whether to fly the house or wait for what might happen to you. I had never seen anyone in such an attack before, and almost expected to hear you fall forward to the floor. But when you did not, and the silence, which seemed so awful, remained unbroken, I pulled the curtain aside and looked in again. There was no change in your posture, and, alarmed now for your sake rather than for my own, I did not dare to go till Bella came back. So I stayed, watching. Stayed where? In a dark corner of that same room. I never left it till the crowd came in. Then I slid out behind them. Was the child with you, at your side, I mean, all this time? I never let go her hand. Woman, are you keeping nothing back? Nothing but my terror at the sight of Bella running in all bloody to escape the people pressing after him. I thought then that I had been the death of servant as well as master. You can imagine my relief when I heard that yours was but a passing attack. Sincerity was in her manner and in her voice. The judge breathed more easily and made the remark, No one with hearing unimpaired can realize the suspicion of the deaf, nor can anyone who is not subject to attacks like mine conceive the doubts with which a man so cursed views those who have been active about him while the world to him was blank. Thus he dismissed the present subject, to surprise her by a renewal of the old one. What are your reasons, said he, for the hopes you have just expressed? I think it your duty to tell me before we go any further. It was an acknowledgment, uttered after his own fashion, of the truth of her plea and the correctness of her woman's insight. She contemplated his face anew, and wondered that the dart she had so inconsiderately launched should have found the one weak joint in this strong man's armor. But she made no immediate reply rather stopped to ponder, finally saying, with drooped head and nervously working fingers, Excuse me for tonight. What I have to tell, or rather, what I have to show you requires daylight. Then, as she became conscious of his astonishment, added falteringly, Have you any objection to meeting me tomorrow on the bluff overlooking dark? The voice of the clock, and that only. Tick tick, 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 that only. Why then had she felt it impossible to finish her sentence? The judge was looking at her. He had not moved, nor had an eyelash stirred. But the rest of that sentence had stuck in her throat, 
and she found herself standing as immovably quiet as he. Then she remembered. He had loved Algernon Etheridge. Memory still lived. The spot she had mentioned was a horror to him. Weakly, she strove to apologize. I am sorry, she began, but he cut her short at once. Why there? he asked. Because, her words came slowly, haltingly, as she tremulously, almost fearfully, felt her way with him, because there is no other place where I can make my point. He smiled. It was his first smile in years, and naturally was a little constrained, and to her eyes at least, almost more terrifying than his frown. You have a point then to make? A good one. He started as if to approach her, and then stood stock still. Why have you waited till now? he called out, forgetful that they were not alone in the house, forgetful apparently of everything but his surprise and repulsion. Why not have made use of this point before it was too late? You were at your husband's trial. You were even on the witness stand. She nodded, thoroughly cowed at last, both by his indignation and the revelation contained in this question of the judicial mind. Why now, when the time was then? Happily, she had an answer. Judge Ostrander, I had a reason for that, too, and, like my point, it is a good one. But do not ask me for it tonight. Tomorrow I will tell you everything. But it will have to be in the place I have mentioned. Will you come to the bluff where the ruins are one half hour before sunset? Please, be exact as to the time. You will see why, if you come. He leaned across the table. They were on opposite sides of it. And plunging his eyes into hers stood so, while the clock ticked out one slow minute more. Then he drew back, and remarking with an aspect of gloom, but with much less appearance of distrust. A very odd request, madam. I hope you have good reason for it. Adding, I bury Bella tomorrow, and the cemetery is in this direction. I will meet you where you stay, and at the hour you name. And regarding him closely as he spoke, she saw that for all the correctness of his manner, and the bow of respectful courtesy with which he instantly withdrew, that deep would be his anger, and unquestionable the results to her if she failed to satisfy him at this meeting of the value of her point in reawakening justice and changing public opinion. End of chapter 8 With Her Veil Lifted Chapter 9 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte Chapter 9 Excerpts One of the lodgers at the Claymore Inn had great cause for complaint the next morning. A restless tramping over his head had kept him awake all night. That it was intermittent had made it all the more intolerable. Just when he thought it had stopped, it would start up again. To and fro, to and fro, as regular as clockwork, and much more disturbing. But the complaint had never reached Mrs. Averill. The landlady had been restless herself. Indeed, the night had been one of thought and feeling to more than one person in whom we are interested. The feeling we can understand, the thought, that is, Mrs. Averill's thought, we should do well to follow. 
the one great question which had agitated her was this should she trust the judge ever since the discovery which had changed reuther's prospects she had instinctively looked to this one source for aid and sympathy her reasons she has already given his bearing during the trial the compunction he showed in uttering her husband's sentence were sufficient proof to her that for all his natural revulsion against the crime which had robbed him of his dearest friend he was the victim of an undercurrent of sympathy for the accused which could mean but one thing a doubt of the prisoner's actual guilt but her faith had been sorely shaken in the interview just related he was not the friend she had hoped to find he had insisted upon her husband's guilt when she had expected consideration and a thoughtful recapitulation of the evidence and he had remained unmoved or but very little moved by the disappointment of his son his only remaining link to life why was the alienation between these two so complete as to block out natural sympathy had the separation of years rendered them callous to every mutual impression she dwelt in tenderness upon the bond united herself and reuther and could not believe in such unresponsiveness no parent could carry resentment or even righteous anger so far as that judge ostrander might seem cold both manner and temper would naturally be much affected by his unique and solitary mode of life but at heart he must love oliver it was not in nature for it to be otherwise and yet it was at this point in her musing that there came one of the breaks in her restless pacing she was always of an impulsive temperament and always giving way to it sitting down before paper and ink she wrote the following lines my darling if unhappy child i know that this sudden journey on my part must strike you as cruel when if ever you need your mother's presence and care but the love i feel for you my reuther is deep enough to cause you momentary pain for the sake of the great good i hope to bring you out of this shadowy quest i believe what i said to you on leaving that a great injustice was done your father feeling so shall i remain quiescent and see youth and love slip from you without any effort on my part to set this matter straight i cannot i have done you the wrong of silence when knowledge would have saved you shock and bitter disillusion but i will not add to my fault the inertia of a cowardly soul have patience with me then and continue to cherish those treasures of truth and affection which you may one day feel free to bestow once more upon the one who has a right to each and all of them this is your mother's prayer deborah scoville it was not easy for her to sign herself thus it was a name which she had tried her best to forget for twelve long preoccupied years but how could she use any other in addressing her daughter who had already declared her intention of resuming her father's name despite the opprobrium it carried and the everlasting bar it must in itself raise between herself and oliver ostrander deborah scoville a groan broke from her lips as she rapidly folded that name in and hid it out of sight in the envelope she as rapidly addressed but her purpose had been accomplished or would be when once this letter reached reuther with these words in declaration against her 
she could not retreat from the stand she had therein taken. It was another instance of burning one's ships upon disembarking, and the effect made upon the rider showed itself at once in her altered manner. Henceforth, the question should not be what awaited her, but how she should show her strength in face of the opposition she now expected to meet from this clear-minded, amply-equipped lawyer and judge she had called to her aid. A task for his equal, not for an ignorant, untried woman like myself, she thought, and following another of her impulses, she leaped from her seat at the table and rushed across to her dresser, on which she placed two candles, one at her right and another at her left. Then she sat down between them, and in the stillness of midnight surveyed herself in the glass, as she might survey the face of a stranger. What did she see? A countenance no longer young, and yet with some of the charm of youth still lingering in the brooding eyes, and in the dangerous curves of a mobile and expressive mouth. But it was not for charm she was looking, but for some signs of power, quite apart from that of sex. Did her face express intellect, persistence, and, above all, courage? The brow was good. She would so characterize it in another. Surely a woman with such a forehead might do something even against odds. Nor was her chin weak. Sometimes she had thought it too pronounced for beauty. But what had she to do with beauty now? And the neck so proudly erect, the heaving breast, the heart all aflame, Defeat is not for such, or only such defeat as bears within it the germ of future victory. Is her reading correct? Time will prove. Meanwhile, she will have confidence in herself, and that this confidence might be well founded. She decided to spend the rest of the night in formulating her plans and laying out her imaginary campaign. Leaving the dresser, she recommenced that rapid walking to and fro which was working such havoc in the nerves of the man in the room below her. When she paused, it was to ransack a trunk and bring out a flat wallet filled with newspaper clippings, many of them discolored by time, and all of them showing marks of frequent handling, a handling now to be repeated. For after a few moments spent in arranging them, she deliberately set about their complete reprusal a task in which it has now become necessary for us to join her. The first was black with old headlines. Crime in Dark Hollow. Algernon Etheridge, one of our most esteemed citizens, waylaid and murdered at Longbridge. A direct clue to the murderer. The stick with which the crime was committed easily traced to its owner. The landlord of Claymore Tavern in the toils. He denies his guilt but submits sullenly to arrest. Particularly followed. Last evening Shelby's clean record was blackened by outrageous crime. Some time after nightfall, a carter was driving home by Factory Road, when, just as he was nearing Longbridge, one of his horses shied so violently that he barely escaped being thrown from his seat. As he had never known the animal to shy like this before, he was curious enough to get down and look about him for the cause. Dark Hollow is never light, but it is impenetrable after dark. And not being able to see anything, he knelt down in the road and began to feel about with his hand. This brought results. In a few moments he came upon the body of a man 
lying without movement and seemingly without life. Longbridge is not a favorite spot at night, and knowing that in all probability an hour might elapse before assistance would arrive in the shape of another passerby, he decided to carry his story straight to Claymore Tavern. Afterwards, he was heard to declare that it was fortunate his horses were headed that way instead of the other, or he might have missed seeing the skulking figure which slipped down into the ravine as he made the turn at the far end of the bridge, a figure which had no other response to his loud, Hola, than a short cough, hurriedly choked back. He could not see the face or identify the figure, but he knew the cough. He had heard it a hundred times, and saying to himself, I'll find fellows enough at the tavern, but there's one I won't find there, and that's John Scoville. He whipped his horse up the hill and took the road to Claymore. And he was right. A dozen fellows started up at his call, but Scoville was not among them. He had been out for two hours, which the carter, having heard, he looked down but said nothing except, Come along, boys, I'll drive you to the turn of the bridge. But just as they were starting, Scoville appeared. He was hatless and disheveled, and reeled heavily with liquor. He also tried to smile, which made the carter lean quickly down, and with very little ceremony drag him up into the cart. So, with Scoville amongst them, they rode quickly back to the bridge, the landlord coughing, the men all grimly silent. In crossing the bridge, he made more than one effort to escape, but the men were determined, and when they finally stooped over the man lying in Dark Hollow, he was in their midst and was forced to stoop also. One flash of the lantern told the dismal tale. The man was not only dead, but murdered. His forehead had been battered in with a knotted stick. All his pockets hung out empty, and from the general disorder of his dress, it was evident that his watch had been torn away by a ruthless hand but the face they failed to recognize till some people, running down from the upper town where the alarm had by this time spread, sent up the shout of, It's Mr. Etheridge, Judge Ostrander's great friend. Let someone run and notify the judge. But the fact was settled long before the judge came upon the scene, and another fact, too. In beating the bushes, they had lighted on a heavy stick. When it was brought forward, and held under the strong light made by a circle of lanterns. A big movement took place in the crowd. The stick had been recognized. Indeed, it was well known to all the Claymore men. They had seen it in Scoville hands a dozen times. Even he could not deny its ownership, explaining, or trying to, that he had been in the ravine looking for the stick only a little while before, and adding as he met their eyes, I lost it in these woods this afternoon. I hadn't anything to do with this killing. He had not been accused, but he found it impossible to escape after this, and when, at the insistence of the coroner Haynes, he was carefully looked over and a small red ribbon found in one of his pockets, he was immediately put under arrest and taken to the city lockup, for the ribbon had been identified as well as the stick. Oliver Ostrander, who had accompanied his father to the scene of crime, declared that he had observed it that very afternoon, dangling from one end of Mr. Etheridge's watch-chain 
where it had been used to fasten temporarily a broken link. As we go to press, we hear that Judge Ostrander has been prostrated by this blow. The deceased had been playing chess up at his house, and in taking the shortcut home, had met with his death. Longbridge should be provided with lights. It is a dangerous place for foot passengers on a dark night. A later paragraph. The detectives were busy this morning, going over the whole ground in the vicinity of the bridge. They were rewarded by two important discoveries. The impression of a foot in a certain soft place halfway up the bluff, and a small heap of fresh earth nearby which, on being dug into, revealed the watch of the murdered man. The broken chain lay with it. The footprint has been measured. It coincides exactly with the shoe worn that night by the suspect. The case will be laid out before the grand jury next week. The prisoner continues to deny his guilt. The story he gives out is to the effect that he left the tavern some few minutes before seven o'clock to look for his child who had wandered into the ravine, that he entered the woods from the road running by his house and was searching the bushes skirting the stream when he had heard little Ruther shout from somewhere up on the bluff. He had to stick with them, for he never went out without it. But finding it in his way, he leaned it against a tree and went plunging up the bluff without it. Why he didn't call out the child's name, he doesn't know. He guessed he thought he would surprise her, and why, when he got to the top of the bluff and didn't find her, he should turn about for his stick instead of hunting for her on the road. He also fails to explain, saying again, he doesn't know. What circumstances force him to tell, and what he declares to be true is this, that instead of going back diagonally through the woods to the lone chestnut where he had left his stick, he crossed the bridge and took the path running along the edge of the ravine, that in doing this he came upon the body of a man in the black recesses of the hollow, a man so evidently beyond all help that he would have hurried by without a second look. If it had not been for the watch, he saw a line on the ground close to the dead man's side. It was a very fine watch, and it seemed like tempting Providence to leave it lying there, exposed to the view of any chance tramp who might come along. It seemed better for him to take it into his own charge till he found some responsible person willing to carry it to police headquarters. So, without stopping to consider what the consequences might be to himself, he tore it away by the chain from the hold it had on the dead man's coat and put it in his pocket. He also took some other little things, after which he fled away into town, where the sight of the saloon was too much for him, and he went in to have a drink to take the horrors out of him. Since then, the detectives have followed all his movements, and know just how much liquor he drank, and to whom, in tipsy bravado, he showed the contents of his pockets. But he wasn't so far gone as not to have moments of apprehension when he thought of the dead man lying with his feet in dark hollow, and of the hue and cry which would soon be raised, and what folks might think if that accursed watch he had taken so innocently should be found in his pocket. Finally, his fears overcame his scruples, and started for home, he stopped at the bluff, meaning to run down over the bridge and drop the watch as near as possible to the spot where he had found it. But as he turned to descend, he heard a team approaching from the other side, 
and terrified still more, he dashed into the woods, and tearing up the ground with his hands, buried his booty in the loose soil, and made for home. Even then, he had no intention of appropriating the watch, only of safeguarding himself, nor did he have any hand at all in the murder of Mr. Etheridge. This he would swear to, also, the leaving of the stick where he said, it is understood that in case of his indictment, his lawyer will follow the line of defense thus indicated. Today, John Scoville was taken to the tree where he insists he left his stick. It is a big chestnut, some hundred and fifty feet beyond the point where the ravine turns west. It has a big enough trunk for a stick to stand upright against it, as was shown by Inspector Snow, who had charge of this affair. But we are told that after demonstrating this fact with the same bludgeon, which had done his bloody work in the hollow, the prisoner showed a sudden interest in this weapon and begged to see it closer. This being granted, he pointed out where a splinter or two had been freshly whittled from the handle and declared that no knife had touched it while it remained in his hands. But as he had no evidence to support the statement, a knife having been found amongst the other effects taken from his pocket at the time of his arrest, the impression made by this declaration is not likely to go far towards influencing public opinion in his favor. A true bill was found today against John Scoville for the murder of Algernon Etheridge. A third clipping. We feel it our duty, as the one independent paper of this city, to insist upon the right of a man to the consideration of the public till a jury of his peers has pronounced upon his guilt, and thus rendered him a criminal before the law. The way our hitherto sufficiently respected citizen, John Scoville, has been maligned, and his every fault and failing magnified for the delectation of a greedy public, is unworthy of a Christian community. No man saw him kill Algernon Etheridge, and he himself denies most strenuously that he did so. Yet from the first moment of his arrest till now, not a voice has been raised in his favor, or the least account taken of his defense. Yet he is the husband of an estimable wife and the father of a child of such exceptional loveliness that she has been the petted darling of high and low ever since John Scoville became the proprietor of Claymore Tavern. Give the man a chance. It is our wish to see justice vindicated and the guilty punished, but not before the jury has pronounced its verdict. The star was his only friend, sighed Deborah Scoville as she laid the clipping aside and took up another headed by a picture of her husband. This picture she subjected to the same scrutiny she had just given to her own reflection in the glass. Seeing him anew, as she said to herself, after all these years of determined forgetfulness, it was not an unhandsome face. Indeed, it was his good looks which had prevailed over her judgment in the early days of their courtship. Luther had inherited her harmony of feature from him, the chiseled nose, the well-modeled chin, and all the other physical graces which had made him a fine figure behind his bar. But even with the softening of her feelings towards him, since she had thus set herself up in his defense, Deborah could not fail to perceive under all these surface attractions an expression of unreliability, or, as some would say, of actual cruelty ruddy-haired and fair of skin. He should have had an optimistic temperament, but on the contrary, he was of a gloomy nature, and only infrequently social. 
No company was better for his being in it. Never had she seen any man sit out the evening with him without effort. Yet the house had prospered. How often had she said to herself in noting these facts, Yet the house prospers. There was always money in the till, even when the patronage was small. Their difficulties were never financial ones. She was still living on the proceeds of what they had laid by in those old days. Her mind continued to plunge back. He had had no business worries, yet his temper was always uncertain. She had not often suffered from it herself, for her ascendancy over men extended even to him, but Ruther had shrunk before it more than once. The gentle Ruther, who was the refined, the etherealized picture of himself, and he had loved the child as well as he could love anybody. Great gusts of fondness would come over him at times, and then he would pet and cajole the child almost beyond a parent's prerogative. But he was capable of striking her, too, had struck her frequently, and for nothing, an innocent look, a shrinking movement, a smile when he wasn't in the mood for smiles. It was for this Deborah had hated him, and it was for this the mother and her now held him responsible for the doubts which had shadowed their final parting. Was not the man who could bring his hand down upon so frail and exquisite a creature as Ruther was in those days capable of any act of violence? Yes, but in this case he had been guiltless. She could not but concede this even while yielding to extreme revulsion as she laid his picture aside. The next slip she took up contained an eulogy of the victim, the sudden death of Algernon Etheridge has been in more than one sense a great shock to the community. Though a man of passive rather than active qualities, his scholarly figure, long, lean, and bowed, has been seen too often in our streets not to be missed, when thus suddenly was drawn. His method of living, the rigid habits of an almost ascetic life, such an hour for this thing, such an hour for that, his smile, which made you soon forget his irascibility and pride of learning, made up a character unique in our town, and one that we can ill afford to spare. The closed doors of the little cottage, so associated with his name that it will be hard to imagine it occupied by anyone else, possess a pathos of their own, which is felt by young and old alike. The gate that would never latch, the garden, for at a stated hour in the morning his bowed figure would always be seen hoeing or weeding or raking. The windows without curtains, showing the stacks of books within, are eloquent of a presence gone, which can never be duplicated. Alone on his desolate corner, it seems to mourn the child, the boy, the man who gave it life and made it, in its simplicity, more noted and more frequently pointed at than any other house in town. Why he should have become the target of fate is one of the mysteries of life. His watch, which aside from his books was his most valuable possession, was the gift of Judge Ostrander. That it should be associated in any way with the tragic circumstances of his death is a source of the deepest regret to the unhappy donor. This excerpt she hardly looked at but the following she studied carefully. Judge Ostrander has from the first expressed a strong desire that some associate judge should be called upon to preside over the trial of John Scoville for the murder of Algernon Etheridge. But Judge Saunders' sudden illness and Judge Dole's departure for Europe 
have put an end to these hopes. Judge Ostrander will take his seat on the bench as usual next Monday. Fortunately for the accused, his well-known judicial mind will prevent any unfair treatment of the defense. The prosecution, in the able hands of District Attorney Foss, made all its points this morning. Unless the defense has some very strong plea in the background, the verdict seems foredoomed. A dogged look has replaced the callous and indifferent sneer on the prisoner's face, and sympathy, if sympathy there is, is centered entirely upon the wife, the able, agreeable, and bitterly humiliated landlady of Claymore Tavern. She, it is, who has attracted the most attention during this trial, little as she seems to court it. Only one new detail of evidence was laid before the jury today. Scoville has been known for some time to have a great hankering after a repeating watch. He had once seen that of Algernon Etheridge and was never tired of talking about it. Several witnesses testified to his various remarks on this subject. Thus the motive for his dastardly assault upon an unoffended citizen, which to many minds has seemed lacking, has been supplied. The full particulars of this day's proceedings will be found below. We omit these to save repetition. But they were very carefully conned by Deborah Scoville, also the following. The defense is in a line with the statement already given out. The prisoner acknowledges taking the watch, but from motives quite opposed to those of thievery. Unfortunately, he can produce no witnesses to substantiate his declaration that he heard voices in the direction of the bridge while he was wandering the woods in search of his lost child. No evidence of any other presence there is promised or likely to be produced. It was thought that when his wife was called to the stand, she might have something to say helpful to his case. She had been the one to ultimately find and lead home the child, and silent as she had been up to this time, it has been thought possible that she might swear to having heard these voices also, but her testimony was very disappointing. She had seen nobody, heard nobody but the child, whom she had found playing with stones in the old ruin, though by a close calculation of time she could not have been far from Dark Hollow at the instant of the crime, yet neither on direct or cross-examination could anything more be elicited from her than what has been mentioned above. Nevertheless, we feel obliged to state that, irreproachable as her conduct was on the stand, the impression she made was, on the whole, whether intentionally or unintentionally, unfavorable to her husband. Some anxiety was felt during the morning session that an adjournment would have to be called, owing to some slight signs of indisposition on the part of the presiding judge. But he rallied very speedily, and the proceedings continued without interruption. Ah! The exclamation escaped the lips of Deborah Scoville as she laid this clipping aside. I remember his appearance well. He had the ghost of one of those attacks, the full force of which I was a witness to this morning. I am sure of this now, though nobody thought of it then. I happened to glance his way as I left the stand, and he was certainly for one minute without consciousness of himself or his surroundings. But it passed so quickly it drew little attention. Not so the attack of today. What a misfortune rests upon this man! Will they let him continue on the bench when his full condition is known? These were her thoughts, as she recalled that day, and compared it with the present. 
There were other slips, which she read, but which we may pass by. The fate of the prisoner was in the hands of a jury. The possibilities suggested by the defense made no appeal to men who had the unfortunate prisoner under their eye at every stage of the proceedings. The shifty eye, the hangdog look, outweighed the plea of his counsel and the call for strict impartiality from the bench. He was a judge guilty of murder in the first degree, and sentence called for. This was the end. And as she read these words, the horror which overwhelmed her was infinitely greater than when she heard them uttered in that fatal courtroom. For then she regarded him as guilty and deserving his fate. And now she knew him to be innocent. Well, well, too much dwelling on this point would only unfit her for what lay before her on the morrow. She would read no more. Sleep were a better preparation for her second interview with the judge than this reconsideration of facts already known to their last detail. Alas! When her eyelids finally obeyed the dictates of her will, the first glimmering rays of dawn were beginning to scatter the gloom of her darkened chamber. End of chapter 9 Excerpts Chapter 10 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. The Shadow. Bella was to be buried at four. As Judge Ostrander prepared to lock his gate behind the simple cortege, which was destined to grow into a vast crowd before it reached the cemetery, he was stopped by the sergeant, who whispered in his ear, I thought your honor might like to know that the woman you know the one I mean without my name in her, has been amusing herself this morning in a very peculiar manner. She broke down some branches in the ravine, small ones, of course, and would give no account of herself when one of my men asked her what she was up to. It may mean nothing, but I thought you would like to know. Have you found out who she is? No, sir. The man couldn't very well ask her to lift her veil and at the tavern they have nothing to say about her. It's a small matter. I will see her myself today and find out what she wants of me. Meanwhile, remember that I leave this house and grounds absolutely to your protection for the next three hours. I shall be known to be absent, so that a more careful watch than ever is necessary. Not a man, boy, or child is to climb the fence. I may rely on you. You may, Judge. On my return, you can all go. I will guard my own property after today. You understand me, Sergeant? Perfectly, Your Honor. This ended the colloquy. Spencer's Folly, as the old ruin on the bluff was called, in memory of the vanished magnificence, which was once the talk of the county, presented a very different appearance to the eye in broad daylight from what it did at night, with a low moon sending its mellow rays through the great gap made in its walls by that ancient stroke of lightning. Even the enkindling beams of the western sun striking level through the forest failed to adorn its broken walls and battered foundations. To the judge, approaching it from the highway, it was as ugly a sight as the world contained. He hated its arid desolation and all the litter of blackened bricks blocking up the sight of former feastings and reckless merriment, and above all, 
the incongruous aspect of the one gable still standing undemolished with the zigzag marks of vanished staircases outlined upon its mildewed walls but most of all he shrank from a sight of the one corner still intact where the ghosts of dead memories lingered making the whole place horrible to his eye and one to be shunned by all men how long it had been shunned by him he realized when he noticed the increased decay of the walls and the growth of the verdure encompassing the abominable place the cemetery from which he had come looked less lonesome to his eyes and far less ominous and for a passing instant as he contemplated the scene hideous with old memories and threatening new sorrows he envied bella his narrow bed and honorable rust a tall figure and an impressive presence are not without their disadvantages this he felt as he left the highway and proceeded up the path which had once led through a double box hedge to the high pillared entrance he abhorred scandal and shrank with almost a woman's distaste from anything which savoured of the clandestine yet here he was about to beat on a spot open to the view of every passing vehicle a woman who if known to him was a mystery to everyone else his expression showed the scorn with which he regarded his own compliance yet he knew that no instinct of threatened dignity no generous thought for her or a selfish one for himself would turn him back from this interview till he had learned what she had to tell him and why she had so carefully exacted that he should hear her story in a spot overlooking the hollow it would be seen them both to shun there had originally been in the days of spencer's magnificence a lordly portico at the end of this approach girt by pillars of extraordinary height but no sign remained of pillar or doorway only a gap as i have said towards this gap he stepped feeling a strange reluctance in entering it but he had no choice he knew what he should see no he did not know what he should see for when he finally stepped in it was not an open view of the hollow which met his eyes but the purple-clad figure of mrs averill with little peggy at her side he had not expected to see the child and standing as they were with their backs to him they presented a picture which for some reason to be found in the mysterious recesses of his disordered mind was exceedingly repellent to him indeed he was so stricken by it that he had actually made a move to withdraw when the exigency of the occasion returned upon him in full force and with a smothered oath he overcame his weakness and stepped firmly up into the ruins the noise he made should have caused deborah's tall and graceful figure to turn but the spell of her own thoughts was too great and he would have found himself compelled to utter the first word if the child who had heard him plainly enough had not dragged at the woman's hand and so woke her from her dream ah judge ostrander she exclaimed in a hasty but not ungraceful greeting you are very punctual i was not looking for you yet then as she noted the gloom under which he was laboring she continued with real feeling indeed i appreciate the sacrifice you have made to my wishes it was asking a great deal of you to come here but i saw no other way of making my point clear come over here peggy and build me a little house out of these stones you don't mind the child do you judge 
she may offer a diversion if our retreat is invaded. The gesture of disavowal which she had made was courteous, but insincere. He did mind the child, but he could not explain why. Besides, he must overcome such folly. Now, she continued as she rejoined him on the place where he had taken his stand, I will ask you to go back with me to the hour when John Scoville left the tavern on that fatal day. I am not now on oath, but I might as well be, for any slip I shall make in the exact truth. I was making pies in the kitchen, when someone came running in to say that Ruther had strayed away from the front yard. She was about the age of the little one over there, and we never allowed her out alone for fear of her tumbling off the bluff. So I set down the pie I was just putting in the oven, and was about to run out after her, when my husband called to me from the front and said he would go. I didn't like his tone. It was sullen and impatient. But I knew he loved the child too well to see her suffer any danger. And so I settled back to work, and was satisfied enough till the pies were all in. Then I got uneasy, and hearing nothing of either of them, I started in this direction because they told me John had taken the other. And here I found her, sir, right in the heart of these ruins. She was playing with the stones just as Peggy dear is doing now. Greatly relieved, I was taking her away when I thought I heard John calling. Stepping up to the edge just behind where you are standing, sir. Yes, there, where you get such a broad outlook up and down the ravine. I glanced in the direction from which I had heard his call. Just wait a moment, sir. I want to know the exact time. Stopping, she pulled out her watch and looked at it, while he, faltering up to the verge which she had pointed out, followed her movements with strange intensity as she went on to say an explanation of her act. The time is important, on account of a certain demonstration I am anxious to make. You will remember that I was expecting to see John, having heard his voice in the ravine. Now if you will lean a little forward and look where I am pointing, you will notice at the turn of the stream a spot of ground more open than the rest. Please keep your eyes on that spot, for it was there I saw at this very hour twelve years ago the shadow of an approaching figure, and it is there you will presently see one similar, if the boy I have tried to interest in this experiment does not fail me. Now, now, sir, we should see his shadow before we see him. Oh, I hope the underbrush and trees have not grown up too thick. I tried to thin them out today. Are you watching, sir? He seemed to be, but she dared not turn to look. Both figures leaned, intent, and in another moment she had gripped his arm and clung there. Did you see? she whispered. Don't mind the boy. It's the shadow I wanted you to notice. Did you observe anything marked about it? She had drawn him back into the ruins. They were standing in that one secluded corner under the ruinous gable, and she was gazing up at him very earnestly. Tell me, Judge, she entreated as he made no effort to answer. With a hurried moistening of his lips, he met her look and responded with a slight emphasis. The boy held a stick. I should say that he was whittling it. Ah! Her tone was triumphant. That was what I told him to do. Did you see anything else? 
No, I do not understand this experiment or what you hope from it. I will tell you. The shadow which I saw at a moment very like this twelve years ago showed a man whittling a stick and wearing a cap with a decided peak in front. My husband wore such a cap, the only one I knew of in town. What more did I need as proof that it was his shadow I saw? And wasn't it? Judge Ostrander, I never thought differently till after the trial, till after the earth closed over my poor husband's remains. That was why I could say nothing in his defense. Why I did not believe him when he declared that he had left his stick behind him when he ran up the bluff after Ruther. The tree he pointed out as the one against which he had stood it was far behind the place where I saw this advancing shadow. Even the oath he made to me of his innocence at the last interview we held in prison did not impress me at the time as truthful. But later, when it was all over, when the disgrace of his death and the necessity of seeking a home elsewhere drove me into selling the tavern and all its effects, I found something which changed my mind in this regard and made me confident that I had done my husband a great injustice. You found? What do you mean by that? What could you have found? His peaked cap, lying in a corner of the garret. He had not worn it that day. The judge stared. She repeated her statement, and with more emphasis. He had not worn it that day, for when he came back to be hustled off again by the crowd, he was without hat of any kind, and he never returned again to his home. You know that, Judge. I had seen the shadow of some other man approaching Dark Hollow, whose I am in this town now to find out. End of chapter 10 The Shadow Chapter 11 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte Chapter 11 I Will Think About It Judge Ostrander was a man of keen perception, quick to grasp an idea, quick to form an opinion. But his mind acted slowly tonight. Deborah Scoville wondered at the blankness of his gaze and the slow way in which he seemed to take in this astounding fact. At last he found voice, and with it gave some evidence of his usual acumen. Madam, a shadow is an uncertain foundation on which to build such an edifice as you plan. How do you know that the fact you mentioned was coincident with the crime? Mr. Etheridge's body was not found till after dark. A dozen men might have come down that path with or without sticks before he reached the bridge and fell a victim to the assault which laid him low. I thought the time was pretty clearly settled by the hour he left your house. The sun had not set when he turned your corner on his way home, so several people said who saw him besides. Yes, there is a besides, I'm sure of it. I saw the tall figure of a man, whom I afterwards made sure was Mr. Etheridge, coming down Factory Road on his way to the bridge when I turned about to get Ruther. All of which you suppressed at the trial. I was not questioned on this point, sir. Madam, he was standing very near to her now, 
hemming her in, as it were, into that decaying corner. I should have a very much higher opinion of your candor if you told me the whole story. I have, sir. His hands rose, one to the right-hand wall, the other to the left, and remained there with her palms resting heavily against the rotting plaster. She was more than ever hemmed in, but though she felt a trifle frightened at his aspect, which certainly was not usual, she faced him without shrinking and in very evident surprise. You went immediately home with the child after that glimpse you got of Mr. Etheridge? Yes, I had no reason in the world to suppose that anything was going to happen in the ravine below us. Of course I went straight on. There were things to be done at home, and— You don't believe me, sir. His hands fell. An indefinable change had come over his aspect. He bowed, and seemed about to utter an ironic apology. She felt puzzled, and unconsciously she began to think. What was lacking in her statement? Something. Could she remember what? Something which he had expected. Something which, as presiding judge over John's trial, he had been made aware of, and now recalled to render her story futile. It couldn't be that one little thing. But yes, it might be. Nothing is little where a great crime is concerned. She smiled a dubious smile. Then she said, it seems too slight a fact to mention, and indeed I had forgotten it till you pressed me. But after we had passed the gates and were well out on the highway, I found that Ruther had left her little pail behind her here, and we came back and got it. Did you mean that, sir? I meant nothing, but I felt sure you had not told all you could about that fatal ten minutes. You came back. It is quite a walk from the road. The man whose shadow you saw must have reached the bridge by this time. What did you see then, or here? Nothing. Absolutely nothing, Judge. I was intent on finding the baby's pail, and having found it, I hurried back home all the faster. And tragedy was going on, or was just completed, in plain sight from this gap. I have no doubt, sir, and if I had looked— Possibly John might have been saved. The silence following this was broken by a crash and a little cry. Peggy's house had tumbled down. The small incident was a relief. Both assumed more natural postures. So the shadow is your great and only point, remarked the judge. It is sufficient for me. Ah, uh, perhaps. But not enough for the public? Hardly. Not enough for you either? Madam, I have already told you that, in my opinion, John Scoville was a guilty man. And this fact, with which I have just acquainted you, has done nothing to alter this opinion? I can only repeat what I have just said. Oh, Ruther! Oh, Oliver! Do not speak my son's name. I am in no mood for it. The boy and girl are two and can never become one. I have other views for her. She is an innocent victim, and she has my sympathy. You too, madam, though I consider you as following a will-o'-the-wisp, which will only lead you hopelessly astray. I shall not desist, Judge Ostrander. You are going to pursue this jack-o'-lantern? 
I am determined to. If you deny me aid and advice, I shall seek another counsellor. John's name must be vindicated. Obstinacy, madam? No, conscience. He gave her a look, turned, and glanced down at the child, piling stone on stone, and whimpering just a little when they fell. Watch that baby for a while, he remarked, and you will learn the lesson of most human endeavor. Madam, I have a proposition to make you. You cannot wish to remain at the inn, nor can you be long happy separated from your daughter. I have lost Bella. I do not know how, nor would I be willing to replace him by another servant. I need a housekeeper, someone devoted to my interests, and who will not ask me to change my habits too materially. Will you accept the position, if I add as an inducement, my desire to have Ruther also as an inmate of my home? This does not mean that I countenance or in any way anticipate her union with my son. I do not. But any other advantages she may desire, she shall have. I will not be strict with her. Judge Ostrander, Deborah Scoville, was never more taken aback in her life. The recluse opening his doors to two women, the man of mystery filling in aside the reticence of years to harbor an innocence which he refused to let weigh against the claims of a son he has seen fit to banish from his heart and home. You may take time to think of it, he continued, as he watched the confused emotions change from moment to moment the character of her mobile features. I shall not have my affairs adjusted for such a change before a week. If you accept, I shall be very grateful. If you decline, I shall close up my two rear gates and go into solitary seclusion. I can cook a meal if I have to. And she saw that he would do it, saw, and wondered still more. I shall have to write to Ruther, she murmured. How soon do you want my decision? In four days. I am too disturbed to thank you, Judge. Should, should we have to keep the gates locked? No, but you would have to keep out unwelcome intruders, and the rights of my library will have to be respected. In all other regards, I should wish, under these new circumstances, to live as other people live. I have been very lonely these past twelve years. I will think about it. And you may make note of these two conditions. Oliver's name is not to be mentioned in my hearing, and you and Ruther are to be known by your real names. You would yes, madam. No secrecy is to be maintained in future as to your identity or my reasons for desiring you in my house. I need a housekeeper, and you please me. That you have a past to forget, and Ruther a disappointment to overcome, gives additional point to the arrangement. Her answer was, I cannot take back what I have said about my determined purpose. In repeating this, she looked up at him askance. He smiled. She remembered that smile long after the interview was over, and only its memory remained. End of chapter 11. I shall think about it. Chapter 12 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 12 Sounds in the Night. 
Dearest mother, where could we go that disgrace would not follow us? Let us then accept the judge's offer. I am the more inclined to do this because of the possible hope that some day he may come to care for me and allow me to make life a little brighter for him. The fact that for some mysterious reason he feels himself cut off from all intercourse with his son may prove a bond of sympathy between us. I, too, am cut off from all companionship with Oliver. Between us also a wall is raised. Do not mind that teardrop, Mama. It is the last. Kisses from a comforter. Come soon. Ruther. Over this letter Deborah Scoville sat for two hours. Then she rang for Mrs. Yardley. The maid who answered the summons surveyed her in amazement. It was the first time that she had seen her uncovered face. Mrs. Yardley was not long in coming up. Mrs. Averill! She began in a sort of fluster as she met her strange guest's quiet eye. But she got no further. That guest had a correction to make. My name is not Averill, she protested. You must excuse the temporary deception. It is Scoville. I once occupied your present position in this house. Mrs. Yardley had heard all about the Scovilles, and while a flush rose to her cheeks, her eyes snapped with sudden interest. Ah! came in quick exclamation, followed, however, by an apologetic cough and the somewhat forced and conventional remark. You find the place changed, no doubt. Very much so, and for the better, Mrs. Yardley. Then, with the straightforward meeting of the other's eye, calculated to disarm whatever criticism the situation might evoke, she quietly added, You need no longer trouble yourself with serving me my meals in my room. I will eat dinner in the public dining room today with the rest of the boarders. I have no further reason for concealing who I am or what my future intentions are. I am going to live with Judge Ostrander, Mrs. Yardley. Keep house for him, myself, and a daughter. His man is dead, and he feels very helpless. I hope that I shall be able to make him comfortable. Mrs. Yardley's face was a study. In all her life she had never heard news that surprised her more. In fact, she was mentally aghast. Judge Ostrander admitting anyone into his home, and this woman above all. Yet why not? He certainly would have to have someone, and this woman had always been known as a notable housekeeper. In another moment, she had accepted the situation, like the very sensible woman she was, and Mrs. Scoville had the satisfaction of seeing the promise of real friendly support in the smile which which Mrs. Yardley remarked. It's a good thing for you, and a very good thing for the judge. It may shake him out of his habit of seclusion. If it does, you will be the city's benefactor. Good luck to you, madam. And you have a daughter, you say. After Mrs. Yardley's departure, Mrs. Scoville, as she now expected herself to be called, sat for a long time brooding. Would her quest be facilitated or irretrievably hindered by her presence in the judge's house? She had that yet to learn. Meanwhile, there was one thing more to be accomplished. She set about it that evening. Failed, but in black now, she went into town. Getting down at the corner of Colburn Avenue and Perry Street, she walked a short distance on Perry, then rang the bell of an attractive-looking house of moderate dimensions. 
being admitted she asked to see mr black and for an hour sat in close conversation with him then she took a trolley car which carried her into the suburbs when she alighted it was unusually late for a woman to be out alone but she had very little physical fear and walked on steadily enough for a block or two till she came to a corner where a high fence loomed forbiddingly between her and a house so dark that it was impossible to distinguish between its chimneys and the encompassing trees whose swaying tops could be heard swishing about uneasily in the keen night air an eerie accompaniment this latter to the beating of deborah's heart already throbbing with anticipation and keyed to an unusual pitch by her own daring was she quite alone in the seemingly quiet street she could hear no one see no one a lamp burned in front of miss week's small house but the road it illumined i speak of the one running down to the ravine showed only darkened houses she had left the corner and was passing the gate of the ostrander homestead when she heard coming from some distant point within a low and peculiar sound which held her immovable for a moment then sent her on shuddering it was the sound of hammering what is there in a rat-tat-tat in the dead of night which rouses the imagination and fills the mind with suggestions which we had rather not harbour when in the dark and alone deborah scoville was not superstitious but she had keen senses and mercurial spirits and was easily moved by the suggestion hearing this sound and locating it where she did she remembered with a quick inner disturbance that the judge's house held a secret a secret of such import to its owner that the dying bella had sought to preserve it at the cost of his life oh she had heard all about that the gossip at claymore inn had been great and nothing had been spared her curiosity there was something in this house which it behooved the judge to secrete from sight yet more completely before her own and Ruther's entrance. And he was at work upon it now, hammering with his own hand while other persons slept. No wonder she edged her way along the fence with a shrinking yet persistent step. She was circling her future home, and that house held a mystery. And yet like any other imaginative person under a stress of aroused feeling she might very easily be magnifying some commonplace act into one of terrifying possibilities one can hammer very innocently in his own house even at night when making preparations to receive fresh inmates after many years of household neglect she recognized her folly before reaching the adjoining field but she went on where the fence turned she turned there being no obstruction to her doing so. This brought her into a wilderness of tangled grasses where free-stepping was difficult. As she groped her way along, she had ample opportunity to hear again the intermittent sounds of the hammer, and to note that they reached their maximum at a point where the L of the judge's study approached the fences. Rat-tat-tat! Rat-tat-tat! She hated the sound, even while she whispered to herself, it is just some household matter he is at work upon rehanging pictures or putting up shelves it can be nothing else yet on laying her ear to the fence she felt her sinister fears return 
and with shrinking glances into a darkness which told her nothing she added in fearful murmur to herself what am i taking reuther into i wish i knew i wish i knew end of book one chapter twelve sounds in the night chapter thirteen of dark hollow by anna katherine green this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Book Two, The House in the Room, Chapter Thirteen, A Bit of Steel. When are you going to Judge Ostrander's? Tomorrow. This is my last free day. So if there is anything for me to do, do tell me, Mr. Black, and let me get to work at once. There is nothing you can do. The matter is hopeless you think so there was misery in the tone but the seasoned old lawyer who had conducted her husband's defence did not allow his sympathies to run away with his judgment i certainly do madam i told you so the other night and now after a couple of days of thought on the subject i am obliged to repeat my assertion your own convictions in the matter and your story of the shadow and the peaked cap may appeal to the public and assure you some sympathy but for an entire reversal of its opinion you will need substantial and incontrovertible evidence you must remember you will pardon my frankness that your husband's character failed to stand the test of inquiry his principles were slack, his temper violent. You have suffered from both and must know. A poor foundation I found it for his defense, and a poor one you will find it for that reversal of public opinion upon which you count, without very strong proof that the crime for which he was punished was committed by another man. You think you have such proof, but it is meager, very meager find me something definite to go upon and we will talk discouragement discouragement everywhere she complained yet i know john to have been innocent of this crime the lawyer raised his brows and toyed impatiently with his watch-chain if her convictions found any echo in his own mind he gave no evidence of it doubtfully she eyed him what you want she observed at length with a sigh is the name of the man who sauntered down the ravine ahead of my husband i cannot give it to you now but i do not despair of learning it twelve years ago madam twelve years ago i know but i have too much confidence in my cause to be daunted even by so serious an obstacle as that i shall yet put my finger on this man but I do not say that it will be immediately. I have got to renew old acquaintances, revive old gossip, possibly recall to life almost obliterated memories. Mr. Black, dropping his hand from his vest, gave her his first look of unqualified admiration. You ring true, said he. I have met men qualified to lead a forlorn hope, but never before a woman allow me to express my regret that it is such a forlorn one 
Then, with a twinkle in his eye, which bespoke a lighter mood, he remarked in a curiously casual tone, Talking of gossip, there is but one person in town who is a complete repository of all that is said or known this side of Colchester, the next town. I never knew her to forget anything, and I never knew her to be very far from the truth. She lives near Judge Ostrander, a quaint little body, not uninteresting to talk to, a regular character, in fact. Do you know what they say about her house? That everything on God's earth can be found in it, that you've but to name an object and she will produce it. She's had strange opportunities for collecting odds and ends, and she's never neglected one of them. Yet her house is but a box. Miss Weeks is her name. I will remember it. Mrs. Scoville rose. Then she sat down again with the remark, I have a strange notion. It's a hard thing to explain, and you may not understand me, but I should like to see, if it still exists, the stick, my husband's stick, with which this crime was committed. Do the police retain such things? Is there any possibility of my finding it laid away in some drawer, at headquarters, or on some dusty shelf? Mr. Black was again astonished. Was this callousness, or a very deep and determined purpose? I don't know. I never go pottering about at headquarters. What do you want to see that for? What help can you get out of that? None, probably. But in the presence of defeat, you grasp at every hope. I dreamt of that stick last night. I was in an awful wilderness. All rocks, terrific gorges, and cloud-covered, unassailable peaks. A light, one ray, and one only, shone on me through the darkness. Towards this ray I was driven through great gaps in the yawning rocks, and along narrow galleries, sloping above an unfathomable abyss. Hope lay beyond, rescue, light, but a wall reared its black length between. I came upon it suddenly, a barrier mighty and impenetrable, with its ends lost in obscurity, and the ray, the one long beam, it was still there. It shone directly upon me from an opening in this wall. It marked a gate, a gate for which I only lacked the key. Where should I find one to fit a lock so gigantic? Nowhere, unless the something which I held which had been in my hands from the first, would be found to move his stubborn wards. I tried it, and it did, it did. I hear the squeak of those tremendous hinges now, and, Mr. Black, you must have guessed what that something was. My husband's stick, the bludgeon with whose shape I was so familiar twelve years ago. It is that, and that only, which will lead us to the light. Of this? I feel quite sure." A short and ironical grunt answered her. Mr. Black was not always the pink of politeness even in the presence of ladies. "'Most interesting,' he commented sarcastically. "'The squeak you heard was probably the protest of the bed you were reclining on against such a misuse of the opportunities it offered you. 
a dream listened to as evidence in this office you must have a woman's idea of the value of my time flushing with discomfiture she attempted to apologize when he cut her short nevertheless you shall see the stick if it is still to be found i will take you to police headquarters if you will go heavily veiled we don't want any recognition of you there yet you will take me the fact that i never go there may make my visit not unwelcome i'll do it yes i'll do it mr black you are very good how soon now he announced jumping up to get his hat a woman who can take up a man's time with poetry and dreams might as well have the whole afternoon are you ready shall we go all alacrity in spite of the irony of his bow and smile he stood at the door waiting for her to follow him this she did slowly and with manifest hesitation she did not understand the man people often said of her that she did not understand her own charm there was one little fact of which mr black was ignorant that the police had had their eye on the veiled lady at claymore inn for several days now and knew who his companion was the instant they stepped into the headquarters in vain his plausible excuses for showing his lady friend the curiosities of the place her interest in the details of criminology was well understood by sergeant doolittle though of course he had not sounded its full depths and could not know from anyone but judge ostrander himself her grave reasons for steeping her mind again in the horrors of her husband's long since expiated crime and judge ostrander was the last man who would be likely to give him this information therefore when he saw the small mocking eye of the lawyer begin to roam over the shelves and beheld his jaw drop as it sometimes did when he sought to veil his purpose in an air of mild preoccupation he knew what the next request would be as well as if the low sounds which left mr black's lips at intervals had been words instead of inarticulate grunts he was therefore prepared when the question did come any memorial of the etheridge case nothing but a stick with blood marks on it that i'm afraid wouldn't be a very agreeable sight for a lady's eye she's proof the lawyer whispered in the officer's ear let's see the stick the sergeant considered this a very interesting experience quite a jolly break in the dull monotony of the day hunting up the stick he laid it in the lawyer's hands and then turned his eye upon the lady she had gone pale but it took her but an instant to regain her equanimity and hold out her own hand for the weapon with what purpose what did she expect to see in it which others had not seen many times she did not know herself she was simply following an impulse just as she had felt herself borne on by some irresistible force in her dream and so the three stood there the men's faces ironic inquisitive wondering at the woman's phlegm if not at her motive hers hidden behind her veil but bent forward over the weapon in an attitude of devouring interest thus for a long slow minute then she impulsively raised her head and beckoning the two men near she directed attention to a splintered portion of the handle and asked them what they saw there 
Nothing, just stick, declared the sergeant. The marks you are looking for are higher up. And you, Mr. Black? He saw nothing either but stick. But he was little less abrupt in his answer. You mean those roughnesses, he asked. That's where the stick was whittled. You remember that he had been whittling at the stick. Who? The word shot from her lips so violently that for a moment both men looked staggered by it. Then Mr. Black, with unaccustomed forbearance, answered gently enough, Why, Scoville, madam, or so the prosecution congratulated itself upon having proved to the jury's satisfaction. It did not tally with Scoville's story or with common sense, I know. You remember, pardon me, I mean that any one who read a report of the case will remember how I handled the matter in my speech. But the prejudice in favor of the prosecution, I will not say against the defense, was too much for me, and common sense, the defendant's declarations, and my eloquence all went for nothing. Of course they produced the knife? Yes, they produced the knife. It was in his pocket? Yes. Have they that here? No, we haven't that here. But you remember it? Remember it? Was it a new knife? A whole one, I mean, with all its blades sharp and in good order? Yes, I can say that I handled it several times. Then, whose blade left that? And again, she pointed to the same place on the stick where her finger had fallen before. I don't know what you mean. The sergeant looked puzzled. Perhaps his eyesight was not very keen. Have you a magnifying glass? There is something embedded in this wood. Try and find out what it is. The sergeant, with a queer look at Mr. Black, who returned it with interest, went for a glass, and when he had used it, the stare he gave the heavily veiled woman drove Mr. Black to reach out his own hand for the glass. Well, he burst forth after a prolonged scrutiny, there is something there. The point of a knife blade, the extreme point, she emphasized. It might easily escape the observation even of the most critical, without such aid as is given by this glass. No one thought of using a magnifying glass on this, blurted out the sergeant. The marks made by the knife were plain enough for all to see, and that was all which seemed important. Mr. Black said nothing. He was feeling a trifle cheap, something which did not agree with his crusty nature. Not having seen Mrs. Scoville for a half hour without her veil, her influence over him was on the wane, and he began to regret that he had laid himself open to this humiliation. She saw that it would be left for her to wind up the interview and get out of the place without arousing too much attention. With a self-possession which astonished both men, knowing her immense interest in this matter, she laid down the stick and, with a gentle shrug of her shoulders, remarked in an easy tone, Well, it's curious. The ins and outs of a crime, I mean. Such a discovery ten years after the event. I think you said ten years. It's very interesting. Then she sighed. Alas, it's too late to benefit the one whose life it might have saved. Mr. Black, shall we be going? 
I have spent a most entertaining quarter of an hour. Mr. Black glanced from her to the sergeant before he joined her. Then, with one of his sour smiles directed towards the former, he said, I wouldn't be talking about this, sergeant. It will do no good and may subject us to ridicule. The sergeant, none too well pleased, nodded slightly, seeing which she spoke up. I don't know about that. I should think it but proper reparation to the dead to let it be known that his own story of innocence has received this late confirmation. But the lawyer continued to shake his head with a very sharp look at the sergeant. If he could have his way, he would have this matter stop just where it was. Alas, he was not to have his way, as he saw, when at parting he essayed to make a final protest against a public as well as premature reopening of this old case. She did not see her position as he did, and wound up her plea by saying, The public must lend their aid if we are to get the evidence we need to help us. Can we find the man who whittled that stick? Never. But someone else may. I am going to give the men and women of this town a chance. I'm too anxious to clear my husband's memory to shrink from any publicity. You see, I believe that the real culprit will yet be found. The lawyer dropped argument. When a woman speaks in that tone, persuasion is worse than useless. Besides, she had raised her veil. Strange what a sensitive countenance will do. End of chapter 13 A Bit of Steel